All right, welcome everyone back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. I'm Brad Carlson. And today we have uh, got the opportunity to uh, record a podcast with Charlie Rohr, uh, who is a uh, scientist at the Southern Research and Outreach Center, uh, working on their their kind of uh, more horticultural type crops. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks for having me. So, Charlie, uh, do you want to fill us in a little bit on your background, uh, maybe where you grew up? And I'm uh, I'm originally from North Central Iowa. Uh, I went to Iowa State for one degree, and then uh, Michigan State, and then the University of Minnesota. So uh, I've been around the Midwest doing horticulture stuff for quite a while. Okay, that's uh, good to know. And, and you, uh, uh, we entered one of uh, Minnesotans' favorite uh, times of the year here. We've got um, we're in sweet corn season, kind of kind of hitting full stride with uh, sweet corn and sweet corn harvest. And that's one of the things that uh, that you do quite a bit of work on there at uh, the Research and Outreach Center. Yeah, yep. you know, you know, I think a lot of people when they hear horticulture, they just think about gardening and fruit trees and that kind of thing. But uh, you know, it's it's important to recognize that our major canning crops, uh, very important field crops in Minnesota, fall under the horticultural uh, umbrella. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah, um, the reason there's horticulture here in Wasika is. Uh, because we're at the center of this processing crops industry geographically here. Um, you know, it goes Lesseur and Blue Earth all the way over to Wisconsin and into Wisconsin. And Minnesota has 100 to 120,000 acres of sweet corn, processing sweet corn. Um, it's more than, uh, more than any other state. I said that once to a guy from Washington, and he argued with me. Um, I think from a, if, you, if you define it within the canning or cut corn for freezing and canning, we lead the pack, I think, for sweet corn. Well, yes, that's still debatable, though. Um, Washington has a lot of canning and processing, but they also have a lot of fresh market in Washington. Um, there's some in New York, but we do have we do have a very large amount of processing sweet corn relative to the whole industry, and our peas too. Um, pea season's over, but we have more peas for processing than any other state. Too. That's about sixty thousand acres. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know we've uh, we've done work on my end, uh, be more the commodity type crops. Uh, we've done work with growers that attempt to double crop after peas. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, typically, they're going to try to to grow soybeans in a shorter season, and yep. and we've kind of we did some work uh, many years ago now with that kind of trying to figure out uh, what the potential is for production and what what kind of practices might be best and uh you know it's not uncommon for those folks that can get planted and catch a good rainfall to to see a half crop of soybeans following a, a crop yeah. of cannery peas so kind of an interesting concept yeah yeah and it, it's a it, it's a cropping system with a long history in minnesota i know uh in fact just hit, was at a high school graduation party last weekend and there was uh, conversation of uh, one of my uncles was talking to one of my cousins about his grandpa who uh, was driving uh, truck for for hauling peas uh, uh, with with Green Giants presence uh, here in southern Minnesota. I know my grandfather worked uh, a lot of a lot of farmers when they got to uh, I guess what you'd call layby uh, ended up uh, hiring themselves out with their trucks and and tractors and so forth. Uh, 
uh, to work uh, in the in the canning industry back in the 50s and the 60s. Of course, that all ended up getting kind of centralized uh, by the companies, so that that's not some something that's done anymore. But but there's quite a, a long, uh, deep history of those crops uh, in southern Minnesota. A lot of farmers. Uh, have some background uh, whether they are producing those crops or not uh, it's it's uh, always kind of in that uh, frame of reference for most farmers yeah and the the history there's a, a really fascinating commercial I think it actually was in Illinois but uh, the the whole region has a history of processing crops we did asparagus here um, historically we don't really do that anymore that's more um, Michigan kind of uh, there were pumpkins or squash for canned pumpkin that's mostly in Illinois now um, but there is a very long history and I saw a commercial from Illinois from I think 1937 it was Green Giant or Del Monte or something and it was you know a little girl jumping up on her dad's lap daddy tell me where peas come from and he'd take his pipe out well you see and uh, it was, it's a really interesting commercial because it has aerial footage of uh, harvesting peas and you know historically the pea harvesters um, they were just threshed into windrows and then manually put onto wagons. The wagons oh, wow. would take them to the end of the field, right. and the harvesters the, were at the, the end viners, of the field. The, yep. the stationary viners were yep. at the end of the field. And now yep. it's all just one combine. Yeah, I know my grandpa said that he owned, uh, one time owned, a, uh, I think a Model 80 Oliver that had been reversed. They put the, they put the uh, whatever, the cutting units on the back end, and then they reversed the uh, operating station of the tractor uh, they had a conversion kit to drive the tractor backwards and they'd flip the transmission around uh, and he, he said that when he got the thing they had uh, done the easy part they'd put the 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 seat and the uh, the uh, steering wheel back the way it was supposed to be but they hadn't messed with the transmission so when he got it it had one speed in fo <laughs> forward and four in reverse which was of course <laughs> extremely dangerous and not a not a simple situation to correct but uh, mm -hmm. I, I know there's uh, also uh, my, my um, well there, there's a kind of a famous photograph that has made the rounds the last several years on social media of Metropolitan Stadium when it was built in 1958 oh, yeah. and it shows all the farm fields in the background in Bloomington mm -hmm. the site where the Mall of America is now and uh, I know one of my uncles talked about you know that that they used to harvest peas on the in those fields right on 494 that yeah. that they would take the the trucks they'd be hauling peas right on 494 mm -hmm. and the fields were right adjacent to the interstate right there it's even it's just almost hard to imagine right now um with with how developed and how far south the twin cities comes now that there were uh, those kinds of crops mm -hmm. were being grown on that inner beltway in the twin cities yeah that's, that's strange to think about hey it's kind of a side note uh you know canned vegetables seem at least in my perspective to kind of fall in a little bit out of favor with consumers and so uh, how big of a transition have we had uh, most recently from or maybe we haven't from canned to more of the frozen type vegetables uh that that's a really important question that the processors are all struggling with now because it's not it's not moving from canned to frozen it's moving from processed to fresh oh okay. and um because consumers are they have a perception that fresh is healthier. They've been, they've been, they've been led to believe that fresh fresh produce is the produce to get, and that's way better for you than anything else. Um, and it's not necessarily true. 
so they're working with an image problem in the processing industry. Because um, they're, they're vegetable processors. They can't just switch to being fresh market vegetable growers. Um, Not to mention the logistics of that in the wintertime in the Midwest. Yeah, I mean, yes. it's got to be going to have to be brought in from Central America or exactly. South America to get it fresh. So that's, that's one thing they're struggling with is how to convince consumers that, that frozen produce is just as healthy as fresh produce. Huh. Um, the, the, uh, they've also struggled historically with things like BPA in the liners of the cans oh, yeah. or, you know, perceptions of things like that that they um, have to deal with, consumer perceptions. Um, or uh, like frozen, frozen sweet corn, for example, is just sweet corn canned sweet corn has salt in it and mm-hmm. so that that's about the only difference between eating fresh sweet corn and eating sweet corn that you take home and boil is the salt in the can yeah yeah and from my perspective i guess i think about some of the areas where sweet corn in the middle of january if it was to be fresh where it's coming yes. from and what kind of practices might be involved with producing exactly sweet corn in those kind of environments with insect pressure and so they they the last the last time i heard a discussion about this among the industry they were it's not easy for them to to like hand out a pamphlet that says if you buy fresh sweet corn in january it was sprayed every other day with insecticides in florida <laughs> right like that why not just buy the canned stuff that was maybe sprayed three times here in minnesota or twice or whatever it's yeah it's it it's certainly could be a point though to make i mean it's I think about it when I see the first sweet corn show up and you're like, well, where did that come from? I know it's not ready yeah. in anywhere in the upper Midwest yet. And yep. then I start thinking about some of the areas uh, where you could potentially have that and how many times it'd be being attacked by yes. insects and well, what the, kind of management would need it be needed. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. The major pest of, of sweet corn is corn earworm, mm-hmm. and that doesn't overwinter here. So we don't, we don't really have huge problems with it until late July or August. Um, whereas in the South where it overwinters, it's a year round problem. Um, we get it here because of storms that come up in August that, that bring the adults with them. They lay their eggs in the silks. Um, but we don't have it in, in June, um, maybe some in July, but they have it year round in Florida and Georgia and, but, and with climate change too, it's range is actually moving North. So there's some research showing that the possibility of it overwintering in Wisconsin is about one year out of every 25 going forward which is that's a problem that's gonna get problematic for us yeah yeah so charlie i guess in my experience uh with farmers growing canning crops uh, typically they're getting uh high levels of input if not complete input from the canning company that they're contracted with on management so so what what could you say uh, as far as what the situation is with how how if a farmer's growing peas or growing sweet corn how much of that is the farmer's management and how much of that is just simply being told to them here's our cookbook and you just follow these steps and do this that's a really good question that i don't know the answer to um part of the um part of it is that the processor has to uh, schedule their harvest. So they, you know, they, they might start planting west of here and then move their planting east and adjust the, the varieties they choose based on their maturities and things. So you can't pick what variety you grow necessarily because they need to know when it's going to be ready. Um, they need to know that they pick the hybrid that you use because they have certain um, 
consumer specifications they're looking for, maturity specifications, things like that. Um, in terms of other input, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think they, yes, I don't know the answer to that. Question. Well, I, I think in a lot of cases, like for sweet corn, the farmers are making their own nitrogen management decisions. That's true, yes. They're in charge of their own fertility. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, as far as... Uh, I don't know, Ryan. Are, are you familiar the, the with the herbicide? Herbicide, herbicide weed thing? program would be their own game plan, from what I know. Uh, at least the people I've talked to that grow sweet corn. But then, when it comes to managing, like you said, corn earworm or other uh, plant diseases, I think that kind of falls back to whoever their field person I, is. I think they kinda, hire quite a few like uh, college interns and so forth to do a lot of crop scouting in the summer for that kind of thing. So that's not uh, not going to be kind of. They're not going to be making those decisions necessarily, along mm-hmm. with like what you said, the variety stuff is they're planting whatever whatever's needed to meet the needs of uh, their contract or whatnot. So, mm-hmm. Well, when it comes to the variety work, uh, Charlie, uh, how much of that uh, is there still any kind of uh, uh, public lines of, of that, of, of uh, these crops or... Is that all strictly proprietary at this point? I know, like, for instance, uh, historically, Green Giant in Minnesota had a very uh, active uh, uh, plant breeding program that went on in the sewer. I think that's still there, if I remember correctly. But uh, uh, some of the other companies were relying on uh, uh, external seed companies for their varieties and so forth. Where, where, is, where, where is that at these days? The... Yeah, so the, the processing varieties are bred for processors. And so there are some processors, like Green Giant historically has had their own breeding, but then the private companies have breeding. Um, uh, well, Del- And there's also consolidation in the interest industry. So uh, I think Del Monte and Green Giant are together now. So Del Monte had the breeding program. Um, but companies like Crookham and Seminis, um Syngenta, they have their own processing sweet corn breeding. Um, yeah, I think historically Northrop King was a pretty big sweet corn brand, yeah. and that would fall under Syngenta's, the yep. NK brand, yep. under Syngenta's window. Yeah. There's also, in Wisconsin, there's a public breeding program. Um, but like a lot of public breeding programs, that's it seems to be a lot about developing um, not necessarily the final hybrids, but developing the germplasm that breeders could use. To develop hybrids. Interesting. So, uh, having a little experience uh, planting some sweet corn uh, myself, one of the neat varieties, at least from my perspective, of uh, not having to manage insects, uh, we've used BT hybrids mm-hmm. um, for sweet corn just for fresh consumption with mm-hmm. uh, uh, myself or whatnot. Uh, where's the Where's the industry at as far as consumer? You know, or is that something that uh, they're just avoiding because there's a general kind of skepticism around BT, or it depends on who you're growing for. So those those BT um, varieties, those BT hybrids, are fresh market hybrids. The processors don't have don't use them BT hybrids, as far as I know. Um, so if you're if you're the kind of fresh market grower who has a lot of acreage and you don't know your customer and the customer can't ask you questions, maybe you could use BT. But if well, the and, and, the, and the customer is going to have a pretty negative reaction to chucking the corn and finding a worm in there. Well, I always thought this would be interesting, like at the state fair, to have a pile of sweet corn that has nothing applied to it, 
standard sweet corn, no insecticides. Right next to it, have sweet corn that has some of these BT attributes, and right next to it, have some sweet corn that's been sprayed three times, and ask people, which one would you like to eat? Yeah, no, that'd be a that'd be a, an interesting kind of case study there at the yeah. state fair. We should check into that. Well, yeah, and that is interesting because when it comes to a, a major processor, of course, they've got a, a, a very large uh, public relations advertising yeah. Uh, situation they have to deal with if there was to ever be negative publicity against them but when it comes to just somebody selling sweet corn out of the tailgate of their pickup truck well nobody's yeah. going after that guy so well, like i said as far as i know there are no processing transgenic varieties. hybrids yeah so um yeah and, they, and, they, and they what don't about even is is does roundup ready sweet corn exist yep liberty and roundup okay um there's um so if I want to grow it at home and weed control is a problem for me, I can get it. Yes, you can. Yeah. Uh, some of it, though, uh, you can buy it in a 25-pound bag, okay. and that's more than you would need at your house. Yeah. Oh, I, I could handle it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, and that seed gets expensive. Yes. Yeah, very Re- really expensive. <laughs> and and it's, kind of, it's kind of limited in the, the um, selection. It's not like you can go to your seed catalog and find 50 different transgenic hybrids. There's two or three couple right. yeah right. so charlie what what kind of other work are you doing with these canning crops in uh at the research and outreach center what do you guys all kind of do as far as the research program and the the big thing we do every year with the support of the processing crops industry is a is a pea variety trial so this year we planted we have a an early planting we target april 20th and then we have a later planting targeting may 10th and the seed companies um, send us the varieties they would like us to trial, and we plant them on the day they tell us to plant, and um, just measure measure canopy traits for harvest. We measure yield. We measure the pea size, um, things like that, uh, and that takes up a substantial part. I I don't plan on doing any other work between June twentieth and July seventeenth. Usually, do you have to do a lot of uh a disease evaluation then too with those because my understanding that's a pretty that that's that significantly yeah. will interact with yield and yes and, yeah there are substantial issues with root diseases in peas um they're pretty pretty sensitive so we go on a seven-year rotation we don't plant in the same spot for seven years um and we don't do for that experiment we don't do root disease evaluation that just comes through in the yield results um typically with the exception of this year, it's open to any of the breeders, processors, whoever wants to come look at it, comes looks at it. So they do their own evaluations for diseases, oh, root see. diseases and oh, powdery that's, mildew that's, and things like that. That's interesting. Okay. And it, there's, we have a meeting here um, with the processors and the, and the breeders the, and once a summer. And it's, they get together, the, the breeders talk to the processors about the varieties that are in the trial and what, what things they see in those varieties. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's our big processing pea variety trial. It's a lot of manual labor because the pea combine I mentioned earlier, we don't have one. We have one of the stationary, um, stationary viners. So we have to go out by hand and harvest three square meter plots and run them through the viner. Um, so it's, that kind of limits what else we can do with peas. Uh, we have the variety trial, but it's not like we could do a lot of some of this rotational crop questions because we can't harvest an acre of peas right it's it's manually 
physically not possible to harvest an acre of peas. Well, does does that size of equipment even exist? I mean, pea combines are just massive. I mean, so I, we we asked a company once, or my boss asked a company, what what would it take to build a, a research size pea combine? And they said, oh, it's easy. We could build you one for three hundred thousand right. dollars. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. well, they said three hundred thousand dollars, and. Uh, we said, oh, maybe we can work on that. I don't know. We'll eventually get there. And they said, wait, you want these to be fresh peas? Oh, we can't do that. Oh, they yeah. thought it was a dry pea combine oh, for, wow. for $300,000. Yeah, well, you can buy those on the open market. Yes. So, <laughs> so no, there's no research size green pea combine okay. that we could get. And it's um, so, yeah, we, there's a lot of research we can't do because we're so busy with this variety trial and we can't manually harvest an acre of peas. So we're limited with that. Um, in terms of sweet corn work, um, we, we've been doing a lot of work with um, Carl Rosen on campus. Uh, because when you, when you harvest sweet corn, you know, it's July or August, and there's a lot of green material. You harvest the ears and you take them away from the field. There's a lot of green stalk tissue left. Um, so we're working with Carl to look at, at nitrates in the soil, what happens to them. Um, what if you plant a, a cereal rye cover crop after that sweet corn? Can it hold on to some of that nitrogen and provide it for a subsequent field corn crop? So we're in a third year of that experiment. Um, we have, in collaboration with a plant pathologist on campus, there's a disease that showed up on popcorn in Nebraska in 2015, and we found it on sweet corn here two years ago, kind of bad. It's bacterial leaf streak, mm -hmm. and so it seems to affect sweet corn in our region. Um, so, but we don't know if it affects yield. We don't know if there are resistant hybrids. We don't know any of that. So we're just kind of doing some basic entry-level bacterial disease work with that. Um, we have another study we're working on with the, the crop, um, what is it, NCIS, <laughs> the National Crop in insurance. insurance. Yeah, yeah. insurance. So their hail loss um, equations for sweet corn are based on field corn, and they're old. And so we're working with them to develop um, data so that they can make tables for hail loss adjustments in sweet corn. Um, so just this week, I was out chopping sweet corn with a machete. And, yeah. Making it hail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can never hail where you want it to hail. Yeah. Right. Every time there's forecast for hail, I get worried because it would ruin my hail. It experiment. would ruin the project because <laughs> it's not controlled. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a, that's a ruin. I, I didn't even realize, uh, I suppose, though, as a grower, you'd want to insure against hail, or is it the canning company? It's the processors. That, the processors yeah. are insuring yeah, against it. Because there's a guarantee in those contracts, right? I mean, that's something like that. Yeah. 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 yeah I know that's. Uh, they do have some kind of risk pool that the growers buy into. And, uh, well, my familiarity with that is the, the off chance that they miss their field, that it has to be passed yes. by, they, they get some kind of remuneration without yeah. having harvested that, it. That's a normal that's situation because right. yep. I think they schedule more than, more than they can take in a good year. In case it's a bad year, they for sure have their yes. supply. Yep. And that happens with peas too. Like if the, if if they have to skip a pea field because they're they're running um they have enough peas they're running through the line right now they can skip a pea field and the grower still gets paid based on the contract but um there's usually a bonus for yield or something like that that they don't get paid 
So another kind of an interesting thing, uh, you look at where all these processing facilities are, and uh, they seem to have kind of specialized where one location handles one crop and maybe one type of product, end product. Is that kind of how things have gone? Um, like I said before, there used to be, we have a bird's eye here in Wasika, and I think they used to do asparagus. Um, I don't know if they did pumpkin, um, but they've... A lot of that was in Owatonna. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. At Lakeside. Yeah. Right. Um, but but they, the way the, the seasons work, peas are a cool season crop, and by the time they're done in middle, mid-end of July, sweet corn starts. So they just... Switch over. They switch over. over. You don't. You don't want to build a factory that's only active for a month. Month. Right. So you you try and fill it with other things. The birds I hear in town, I think they co-pack stuff, so they get frozen veggies in from elsewhere. Oh, okay. And they blend it and repack it. Repackage. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Uh, now, as far as how far away can they get crops? You know, you see sweet corn mm-hmm. going up and down the highway, but when it comes to peas, it doesn't seem like that'd be a real. I. I, I heard. A, well, I, I don't. Maybe I shouldn't even say this, but I, I heard a rumor that uh, there was peas uh, uh, way out in uh, in like the uh, Olivia Renville area coming to this area here. Yep. I won't say which canning plant, but that seems like it's really pushing it as far as how far between yeah. harvest and getting them processed before you start losing quality in a hurry. I I think it's two hours. For peas. For peas, I think. And maybe a little longer for corn. I do know that, um, I don't know if it was if it was the processor here in town or if it was another one nearby, but uh, talking with a vegetable researcher in Ames, Iowa, a few years ago, he said they were, they're starting to be peas now near Boone and Ames, Iowa. Oh, wow. Which is kind of far. But well, and that was a conversation over the weekend, you know, when I was talking with, with my uncle and some of the others who had had worked in that line before said that it used to be that if it went over an hour they had to dump that they were they they wouldn't even take them so if a truck broke down you know they said well if you got a flat tire and you sat on the side of the road for 45 minutes they told you to go to the silage pile and dump it they didn't Mm -hmm. want it coming in the plant so there must have been some improvement in in the varieties as far as uh being a little more tolerant and not degrading quite so fast could be yeah so, Charlie, you've got a bunch of other uh, projects outside of those kind of more major cannery crops here and processing uh, mm-hmm. things. Uh, you've got a bunch of other projects that, that you guys have been doing at Southern Research and Outreach Center. Do you want to talk about any of that stuff? Uh, sure. The one that, that's been kind of struggling along for the longest is hop breeding. Um, so back eh, 10 years ago or so um, the craft beer boom was just starting and we thought we'd get into some hop research so we um, after a couple years realized that the basically the only effective thing that I could do um, was to breed hops on a fairly small scale and so we're working on that Um, the the craft beer industry uh, was planning for 20% market share by 2020 and I think they're at 15% now so their their growth kind of leveled off and so the uh, the interest in hops kind of leveled off too um, but we're two or three years away maybe from having a variety to release I think okay. um, part of the problem is the uh, 
there isn't a high concentration of medium to large size growers here that can help us evaluate them on a commercial farm level scale. So I'm thinking of a couple of questions here. The uh, the first one, when, when you start breeding a, a perennial crop that, that you're after some pretty, I don't know, specific characteristics, how long does a, does a breeding exercise take? You know, from, from when, I, oh, I got an idea, now I'm going to start looking at stuff. What kind of timeline do you even work on? Um, it's, so an apple would take a long time because you can't make an apple flower in a year. But a hop plant, it's a perennial, but it can flower in its first year. So you can do some basic level selection. They're dioecious, so you can say, well, I'm going to get rid of these males. I only want to look at females. So you can start doing some selection in the first year. Um, we don't have a greenhouse here, but uh, you can do some selections in the greenhouse based on disease resistance, things like that. Um, the, the difficult thing with hops, though, is that like an apple, if you're breeding an apple, you can go out in the field and you can take a bite and do an evaluation. A hop is used in beer. You can't go out to the field and make a batch of beer and say, oh, yeah, that one's going to be good. So yeah. it's, it's a lot more subjective. The, the flavor characteristics are a lot more subjective, and it's difficult to, to target a specific characteristic and flavor. So um, part of it is you just get lucky. Um, a lot, and you look at historically what hop varieties have been bred, uh, a lot of them were just luck. Um, so, yeah, that's what we're going for. I would think, luck. though, there would be a big advantage, though, here because we're so far removed from large-scale commercial production that uh, it, would, it would really alleviate pest management issues. Nope. No? Nope. Okay. Well, I, I, was, I was at a, a uh, hop uh, research uh, site at, uh, at Idaho and Idaho State uh, Experiment Station, and they were showing us their whatever their major uh, uh, insect predator was a, some kind of a hornworm, but the thing was about the the same size as a corn cob. I I've never oh, I don't really? think I've rarely have I ever seen a uh, caterpillar quite that big before. But uh, it was actually <laughs> I said it would uh, it would make crop scouting fairly easy. You didn't have to spend a lot, long no. time looking for those, but yeah, they they were huge. No, they. One of the so out west where they grow vast majority of hop acres, it's it's powdery mildew in Washington, downy mildew in Oregon, um, spider mites in Washington, aphids anywhere. And when hops were starting to grow in the Midwest and East Coast, um, a lot of growers were <laughs> uh, struggling with uh, leaf hoppers. When the first alfalfa cut happens, the leaf hoppers oh. move into the hops, oh. and that's not a that's not really a big issue out west. Part of it is because the, the aphid insecticides they use also get some of the leafhoppers. They maybe don't have a problem with that. But a lot of growers here were trying to grow without many sprays, and um, leafhoppers were a much larger problem. Corn borers are an issue in hops here sometimes, um, maybe not so much out west. Uh, so there are, there are different challenges. Also, this, this downy mildew thing, um, it's a problem anywhere where it's wet. Uh, they've done downy mildew research in Washington and sometimes had a hard time getting the disease to happen because it's a desert where they grow the hops, basically. Uh, Eight inches of rain yeah. a year. Oh, wow. And we get 30 inches of rain a year, and um, most of that's in the spring and summer. So downy mildew is still a very major issue here. Um, powdery mildew is a big issue. Out west, they have quarantines because they only have one mating type of the powdery mildew disease, and here we have both mating types. So the disease can have sex and make 
very diverse offspring. And out west, the disease does not reproduce sexually. So um, that's potentially a much more major issue here. So I, I would guess another big limitation is just you look at the, the investment in some kind of a, a perennial crop, be it a vineyard or a hop mm-hmm. yard, and just the level of infrastructure you got to invest in. Yes. And then you got to wait several years until you get a return, and it, it would provide another huge hurdle to, to even yes. getting the industry going. Yep. And that was, that's one of the big challenges is the growers need to be able to sell the crop when they first get it in order to get some of that income stream going. Um, but they can't sell a crop if the brewer doesn't know them already. Like you can't just take a garbage bag of hops to a brewery and say, do you want to buy these? Yeah. The brewery's not going to buy them because right. they're probably not all that good. You need to establish connections with the, the customers. The hop growing, hop growing itself is challenging, but it's about 50% marketing and and sales. The processing part of it is very challenging because brewers, uh, most brewers use hop pellets. And if you, if you get a really awesome hop crop and you dry it properly, which is a challenge, you can destroy it by making pellets poorly. And so it's, there are a lot of things to, a lot of hurdles to overcome in starting an industry like that from scratch. Like the grape industry started with as far as I know, it was Elmer Swenson in the 70s in Wisconsin started grapes and um, shared some with the university. And it was only it was only when Frontenac came out that the university breeding program really started to get into its own. And that's I, that's my impression of it. I don't know if that's actually true, but that took 20 years. Yeah, wow, wow. So, and now we're kind of faced with some, you know, struggles with uh if you look at some of your your local breweries and things with the current scenario with our pandemic that's happening and, and yeah. some of the challenges they're going to have with their business bottles being largely kind of direct to consumer you know mm-hmm. you've got a tap room or you've got a local sale and distribution of of your beverages and you know who knows what's going to happen with with that it, yeah. the world's going to look a lot different here in a year or two probably and it as we learned with Surly, a lot of uh, the challenges that they face depend on what the laws say. And so there were some breweries that could remain open for crowler and growler sales. You could go to the brewery and pick something up. And those breweries seem to maybe weather the storm okay. But after, if a brewery makes above a certain volume, they were not allowed to be open. And you couldn't sell growlers or crowlers. So, um, yeah, there were there are some challenges just depending on what the law says. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. another another challenge if the end user is going to struggle here coming into the future, like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Yep. in terms of the industry. Um, so, that, yeah, there's hops. We do hop research. There's uh, we just yesterday I was out weeding our broccoli study. We are studying uh, spring planted cover crop before broccoli and then how much how much potentially how much less fertilizer we may need to add if we can get a pea oak cover crop in before the broccoli because um, peas fix nitrogen, oats will hold on to whatever's in the soil in early in the spring and um, we're doing that. We have a, a carrot research study. Um, we're growing them on raised beds or bare ground. We have kind of heavy soil here in Wasika mm-hmm. County and uh, carrots typically aren't grown on soils like that but um, so one common solution is to recommend growing them on raised beds, uh, but we don't know. There's, there was, when I went to look for why, 
I didn't find any data on what raised beds do for yield or shape or size or anything. So uh, we have a hot pepper project that's new this year in collaboration with Extension. Um, we are uh, growing some chili peppers and there's some on-farm trials with Hispanic growers and we're interviewing uh, restaurants on what kinds of peppers they would use or would like or would take. It's kind of similar to a, a garlic project that was done um, a, while, a few years ago, but so we have some hot peppers here. Uh, there used to be uh, some some work with uh, back when there was more of a vegetable industry in the Hollandale area where there's a lot yes. of uh, peat organic soils. Uh, but then there also was some potato production up into Steele County and some of the sandy soils along the Strait mm -hmm. River and so forth. Uh, um, but I think that industry really has just sort of disappeared the last yeah. few years. I don't know if there's are there is there one grower left or are there none left anymore? I don't know. My my boss is Vince Fritz, and he started in the '80s, and he did a lot of onion research in Hollandale area, and. Uh, so yeah, there have been on these on some of the peat grounds. There have been a lot of other vegetable. There's at least one guy. Yeah, there's down something in down there. No, yeah. when you drive through I, there, there's still some vegetables growing. Yeah. Peat. Uh, anyways, don't need to name names, but he uh, <laughs> he does have some. You'll see carrots and you'll see some quite a bit yep. of onions. Uh, but if you drive through the area, uh, you will see uh, kind of the the what's left of the industry because yeah. there there were the warehouses, warehousing and place, storage yeah. that yep. kind of unusual looking buildings. You can kind of start to figure out like, well, that was where they were sacking up potatoes and mm -hmm. putting them on the rail cars or whatever. But yeah, so there still is a little bit of that in that uh, again, kind of the Hollandale Basin, I guess you'd call it, on the peat ground. Yeah, yeah. and th there's there's also. Uh, in spots there's a, there's a sod industry in oh, yeah. southern minnesota you guys do any work at all with that at all i i have friends that have a sod farm but we don't uh, we don't do any kind of turf work with that no okay there's um i will mention with the the carrots and things that you've seen i was talking with somebody at hormel they make dinty more right. and so he said that you can find different versions of dinty more depending on where it was canned and what the what season it is Oh. So if they, I think they have, they make it down in Georgia too. And so the ones in Georgia, if they're canned at a certain time, they have carrots. Um, if it's not carrot season, they may not have carrots. Oh, interesting. Uh, the ones huh. here in Austin are, there are, I, I remember as an undergrad going to a carrot field near Mason City, Iowa, mm -hmm. and those carrots went to Dinty Moore. Huh. Oh. I know when I was a graduate student, I, I did my uh, research work on potatoes, actually, uh, nitrate leaching of potatoes. Uh, up at Staples at the Irrigation oh, yeah, Center yeah. Staples, and they were growing carrots there at that time, but those carrots were all uh, intended for dehydration. They were yeah. actually, and I don't know if that industry ever took off at all, but but that was the thought at the time as they would dehydrate them and then put them in these dry soup mixes. Soup mixes. Yeah. Sure, yep. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, you guys have anything else you guys want to talk about today? really <laughs> well we covered <laughs> it's we, a nice day <laughs> we, we qu covered quite the span of topics here and we want to really uh, uh take a second here and thank charlie for being on the podcast today mm -hmm. and uh and we want to tell all the listeners uh thanks for listening uh this has been another installment of the gopher coffee shop podcast